Hello and welcome to Inside Medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, practicing physician, and someone very interested in what science can tell us about how to better live our lives. Today's guest is Emily Oster, an economist at Brown University whose evidence-based approach to COVID and kids has become a vital resource for many parents. She is the New York Times bestselling author of The Family Firm, which explores a data-driven approach to making better decisions in the early school years. As a father of four, there are some real gems that can help you, your spouse, and your children. Hosting today's conversation is our Los Angeles-based pediatrician, Dr. Sarah Green. Dr. Green and Oster discuss navigating back to school amidst the Delta variant, how to create a risk budget for your family, and continuing to move forward in this constantly changing environment. Now, over to my colleague and partner, Dr. Sarah Green. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you here. I've been a voracious reader of your content all year and previously pre-COVID. So it's really a pleasure to have you. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me. So I just wanted to start off by thanking you. I, I know that COVID and infectious disease, you have a healthcare background and healthcare economics, but I'm sure this was a pivot you didn't expect to take in your career. <laughs> I share your articles with parents. I think it's always, your perspective is always important. As I said, the communication piece, I think as physicians, especially physicians during a pandemic, treating patients, um, fielding calls about exposures and illnesses and um, deciding how to keep our employees safe. We're making a lot of decisions then not necessarily explaining to the lay audience why we're making these decisions or how they should be making decisions in their own lives. And I think that's what I have found really valuable about your writing is that you do break down those decisions and give people a framework really to to make those decisions. So it is another year, but it's not the same year. It's not 2020. Uh, And what is it that's different about Delta, about this year and where we are right now? And sending our kids back to school. So I kind of think it's it's two things, two things, one of which is good and one of which is not good. So I think, you know, last year, th- this felt so much more fraught because there were no vaccines. And so I think when we were thinking about kids are going to go back to school, it was very much like, are we going to expose high risk adults to COVID because of this choice? And, and somehow like that, you know, that I think that was really that was really scary. It felt like maybe it's wrong. Yeah. Almost felt like we were choosing between teachers and children. So what's exactly. best for children was inherently not what was best for teachers. Exactly. And I think that that really felt like that that there was a lot of fear and it just kind of felt like we're making a hard choice. That we don't have that now, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's like, you know, teachers, if they would like to be vaccinated, they are. Sometimes if they don't want to be vaccinated, they are. But like mm-hmm. at any rate, like, you know, sort of people who have chosen to protect themselves in that age group, like in, you know, anyone above 12 has that option. Mm-hmm. Where I think it's different is, you know, we are seeing more like we we are seeing a more contagious variant and we're seeing mm-hmm. therefore more cases in kids and um and I think we are going to see more cases in kids even in high vaccination areas than we did last last year and again you know those cases are in the vast 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 majority of cases going to be mild or asymptomatic and you know kids are not thank gosh getting very sick but I think it is really scary for parents mm-hmm. to kind of face up to this and say, hey, actually, the chance my kid gets COVID is higher than it was last year. Right. And that's scary. And I just the piece about the kids getting really sick, I think, is a really important one. And 
I think for a lot of parents, it's a tricky one. I also really appreciated something you had written um, in the your last post. You ended it by saying, you know, we're telling parents this is very low risk for your kids, probably. But by saying low risk, you're telling parents it's not no risk, right? You are sending your kid into a world where they might get COVID. Are we getting any more clarity, do you think, in the numbers yet about Delta and how really how dangerous it is to kids? So, I mean, I think we are getting, you know, largely based on like stuff from the UK, can, sort of getting the sense that in terms of severity, it is similar. Is it 5% more severe, 5% less severe? You know, th- those kind of numbers are hard to do. But this, um, you know, I think the, the kind of severity conditional on infection looks really similar. The, you know, the things that are that are going on, though, is it's more contagious, so more people are getting it. And so if, you know, twice as many people get it, at the same severity level, you will see twice as many hospitalizations. The other thing that's been going on which is very complicated and probably hard to talk to people about, is we're seeing this at the same time that we're seeing a lot of other respiratory viruses that would normally happen in the winter. And so I think in Louisiana, you know, Mississippi, some of these places, they saw the RSV surge at the same time they saw, you know, the COVID surge. And that happened in the UK too, actually. They were like, you know, saw a lot of of kids for RSV. And then that's on top. Yeah. And that was really the take home from the last American Academy of Pediatrics call was this hospitals in the South saying, look, in July, we had the worst RSV season we had ever had. And we had it in July. You know, usually RSV is a winter virus. And here we were in the middle of our worst viral season ever. And then COVID came. And so it's a hard message and to communicate to parents, I think, a national media level, because we need people to take this seriously. Because if you live in a community where there is not an ICU bed, you know, one child getting sick from COVID is too many especially if it's preventable, especially if there's ways to mitigate, I should say, but maybe not prevent, but mitigate risk. I mean, I think part of what's what's so frustrating about this is is even very basic questions like, well, how, you know, how, like how many how many kids in my, you know, in my area had, um, you know, are had co- like were diagnosed with COVID last week, how many are in the hospital? You know, that's actually really hard to, to know. And, you know, depending on your state, you might know more or less, but, you know, we're just not reporting this out other than through these kind of like anecdotal kind of numbers. And that's not super helpful. And I know you mentioned this in your article too, that that the initial back to school will be scary. We just all need to accept that. It's going to be fearful. It's going to be sort of anxiety ridden. And now we do have some schools with transparency, which is great. But that means, you know, I got three text messages and four emails last week about COVID cases in my kid's school. Now, if you crunch the numbers, it's less than 1% of the kids have COVID and all of them were acquired in the community. But it's panic inducing. I, I think it's really hard because we've sort of, we've ramped up the fear a lot, much more so in the US than elsewhere, right? So you sort of look at how people talk about this in the UK or in, in you know, elsewhere in Europe, they kind of didn't, they didn't kind of ramp up that fear. And we've sort of gotten to this place where it's like, oh my God, someone at my kid's school has COVID. It's like, yeah, yes. And that's going to kind of keep, keep happening. And I'm not sure other other than just the fact that as it happens more it, and and things go OK, it will like dial down people's fear. I think that's almost all we can almost all we can hope for. Right. You know, I was on a radio call at some point with somebody and they were explaining like, you know, well, like I was so terrified and so terrified. And then one of my kids got COVID and actually like it was OK. And I think it is the sort of lived experience that's going to make those text messages kind of less panic inducing. Yeah, no, that's a good point. The anticipation is almost worse than the actual um, event itself. And so I, as 
we're thinking about this fall and we've got our kids back to school. And I think a lot of us got through that initial sort of preparation and now they're there. And the next step as I'm experiencing personally and that you so eloquently <laughs> discuss in your new book is the discussion is now what else? So what sports, extracurricular activities, play dates. And I'm wondering if there's anything you recommend sort of in that framework that you give in your book about how to approach these logistical decisions in a COVID world. I I like this idea of a risk budget that like there are some things I'm willing to that like I want to spend my risk points on, you know, so like every everything you do that is leaving your house is like in principle entails some COVID risk. And, you know, you're going to need to choose what things you spend your risk points on and you know, or you're going to need to say, like, I ha- I feel I have infinity risk points. But if you, you know, if you want to, if you want to limit your risks, then there's really a sort of prioritization. And that, I think that that argues even more than usual for stepping back and being like, okay, how important is this extracurricular or how important is this play date or, you know, and maybe it's very important in which case, you know, that's, that's some risk points. And maybe it's like, you know, nobody really liked this that much. And, you know, so yeah, maybe we'll just like not do that. And, and so I think that's, that's really that sort of idea of a, like, like, do you want to spend your risk points on this? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think it's actually a good thing to think about in general, because even if it's not COVID risk points, it's, you know, it's time points, right? It's like all of these things have some trade-offs or financial or like all of these things have costs. And so, so kind of thinking about what is really important to do is, is kind of relevant. And I really liked in your book, too, how you mentioned involving the kids in that decision. Um, and I think that applies here, too. Um, I've found even my seven-year-old understands that, you know, a play date with six friends, maybe not, but, you know, one friend outside or maybe we are doing, you know, depending on what your family's deciding, he sort of understands that we could have to make decisions about what we do and maybe limit certain risks, but still do fun things. Um, and he can be involved in those decisions. Yeah. Um, I mean, I am big on giving kids like a lot of, a lot of participation in these mm-hmm. kind of decisions, um, you know, where you're, where you're willing, because I think it, it really helps them think about how to make decisions, but also like be engaged with, you know, with doing them, sort of doing the right thing is almost how I put it. Right. Yeah. And I found that with the mask wearing too. I mean, when they first went back in the spring, the first thing option was outdoor baseball, which was mass and distant. And we just, told them out front, like, you can play baseball, but you have to wear a mask. Is that okay? I'm like, of course. They were happy to wear a mask. They got <laughs> to, to do go. anything. It's yeah, like, exactly. I'll wear, a fe- I'll wear a titanium shield if <laughs> yeah. I can go out and, like, play with my friends on the baseball <laughs> do, field. Do something. Um, and I think that's another thing that you bring up that I really like the perspective of. Um, and this was an early article that you wrote during COVID about, um, as we're all reeling with these decisions, and it felt like it was just, we couldn't make any progress. You were saying, think about what you're deciding between. So it's this or that. And I, I think with the extracurriculars, sometimes when I've found myself sort of, it feels out of control or chaotic, sitting down with my husband and, and the kids sometimes and saying, oh, here, what's this question that we're asking right now? Is it, do we have an after-school babysitter? You know, do, do we do the after-school program? Okay, what's the other option? Well, it's having a babysitter. Okay, well, that's still a risk involved, right? If we're bringing in another person into our house every day. And then you're going to be unmasked with that person probably after school is Matt. So I think it was helpful to compare not just should we do the after school program, but that felt daunting and, uh, you know, it was more, well, what else are we comparing it to? Yeah. I think we, we sort of got into this place where people were thinking about all of, 
especially early on, it was sort of like, should I do this or not? Or not was so safe, you know, or not like nobody gets COVID from or not. And then actually, when you said what that was, you were like, oh, actually, that's I could, you know, that's also a risk. Totally. Yeah. Um, And then the other flip side of that, too, which you talk about is it's not just the risk of COVID, right? So what are the other risks or what are the benefits? And it might be social, emotional, physical, educational, I am always encouraging parents. I think people are getting better at this now at this stage of what are the other non-COVID sort of factors. My kids basically just like we spent so all of our risk points on school. But now there's like this one extracurricular thing like inside. Like she wants to go like play some, some, do some music thing. And it's like inside with other kids who are not in our pod. Like it's not like outdoor soccer, but, you know, but it's really important to her. And I kind of feel like, okay, I guess we're spending some risk points there. Yeah. my The other piece of that too is, and I think the question of, as we talk about risk of COVID, we also, how we communicate to our kids, especially as they're coming up with cases in the class and we're sending them into a world where it's low risk, but not no risk, is how do you communicate with kids and this framework that you've broken down about how how risky is this for them? I mean, I think I I have a 10-year-old um, and I think, you know, particularly in the spring when there was sort of so much uncertainty and it was all like so scary and, um, you know, and crazy. She and I spent a lot of time talking about this. And I think part of what I realized is like different kids are going to respond to different stuff. Like for her, like she really wanted to know about the science. And so we actually spent a huge amount of time on the science and on the data. Like, I mean, this is my kid, so there you go. Um, but, you know, I think for her, that was the way to like not be afraid and was to sort of like feel like she had an understanding. But I think a lot of it with kids is is we convey, you know, they they feel our fear, right? Or or not. And I think they pick up on the fear and also the uncertainty. Or I know like with my husband and I, if we're going back and forth on discussing and debating and, but I do find, and I complete, I completely agree with him is that we end up having to have these conversations anyway. Like ultimately, you know, when my seven-year-old was sick last week, somebody had to stay home. Right. And so either we make it at 7, 15 AM when they have to be at school at 8 7, <laughs> or we sit down ahead of time and, and go through it. And so I, I think that with these sort of extracurricular COVID decisions, play dates, and I think that he actually did agree and come around to the idea of like, let's sit down and discuss. So we're going to have play dates. Okay. Yes or no. Right. Okay. Are are they going to be, are they going to be masked? Are they going to, kids are going to be allowed inside, you know, how many kids at a time? And as a, as a family, at least we can kind of come up with that. Now in your last article, you mentioned not reevaluating this daily, right? So kind of like get your plan and go with it. But we also have new information coming in all the time. So I'm wondering sort of what do you think is a good cadence for reevaluating these? I mean, so I think there's like two two parts of that. So one is that some of these kind of decisions are probably contingent on some aspect of the mm-hmm, disease mm-hmm. environment, right? So like presumably whatever ma- like play date thing you've written, like if you woke up tomorrow and the case rate were 300, you'd probably make a different a different choice, right? So there's sort of something in there which is not exactly reevaluating. It's not reevaluating the decision, it's just reevaluating like where you are on some, you know, slider. Then there's a like sort of should we totally reevaluate like how we're going to think about this? And I, you know, I think unfortunately we do kind of have to do that with some 
frequency, you know, and so it probably is every, you know, probably every few weeks there is some, you know, some version of that, you know, or if we learn something especially important and new about the virus, although I would say we're learning that stuff more slowly than we did, you know, in April, 2020. I was kind of laughing with your book. I was like, you know, I wonder if you do marriage counseling as well. No, I do feel like, I mean, I think what's interesting is some people are like, you know, I don't, people are like, well, this, somebody told me like, I think, you know, I think this would work great if like you and your spouse agree on everything. But like, and I was like, actually, no, like if you and your spouse agree on everything, you don't need my, you don't need any of these tools. It is in fact, when you disagree that this is most useful, you know, and like, and you're not avoiding those conflicts by not airing them. You're just airing them in a less, it's 7.15 in the morning <laughs> rather than at a more convenient time. So I wanted to pivot a little bit because I a question that's coming up a lot um, now that we have testing more readily available. I think that's another difference now between where we were last year um, is the idea of using rapid antigen testing. And this was sort of vilified, I think, by the medical community initially. I know personally, I was kind of like, oh, poo-poo, like you have your, you know, home rapid antigen test. I don't believe it at all. You need a PCR test. And now the numbers, and as we're thinking about using them more frequently, and they've sort of come around again. And I think we're all embracing them a little more. And I'm curious your how you interpret that data and the sort of pivot. So what is the value of the rapid antigen? So the value is that you can do it right now. And it's, it is, you know, reliable for high viral loads. So it is like, it is going to pick, it is not going to pick up, you know, a kind of often for most people, not going to pick up a very, you know, mild case and it will miss some cases, but it is easy. It is available and it will pick up a good share of cases, like, you know, well over half and certainly like a much higher share of, of, uh, of symptomatic cases. And so I think, you know, in that sense, like we're kind of, looking around and being like, well, it's not as good as PCR. Yeah, but like you can do it in your house and it's ready in 15 minutes. And so I think there's a there's a kind of screening use of this, which is is really valuable for things like, you know, we're like we could do them frequently at schools. You could do them, you know, to have events. Like, you know, is it gonna is it gonna detect every single case of, of COVID in those places? No. Is it gonna detect some of them? Yes. Is it going to detect the most infectious ones? Yes. Can we pull those people out of the circulation? Is that going to help? Yes. And yeah, I always, the way I use them is I back them up with a PCR. And so we can have immediate data, then we can have our PCR tests, you know, 24, 48 hours later. But um, especially like you said, for the symptomatic kids, which, you know, we're seeing a lot of non-COVID illness now that kids are back in school. And it's really helpful to know 36 hours earlier that a kid has COVID. And if they're positive, they're super helpful. And those siblings aren't going to go to school. And, you know, there's just, I, I do think that they can be can be really helpful in that, especially the symptomatic kids, which we have a lot of symptomatic kids right now. Yeah. I mean, I would like to see more, you know, I would like to see um, somebody articulate a little bit of a, of a more consistent approach to using these in schools, um, you know, in a way like, you know, here is how you should do it. Because I think there's a lot of like, uh, we're using this, but, you know, like, I mean, the UK basically does a like, like everybody all the time kind of version of these, of these rapid tests. And I think we could, you know, there's a, there's an argument for that. I think that we haven't done as good a job as we might have explaining to schools how they could use this. Yes. I'm working on that with my school currently. The response is always, well, we have access to the gold standard PCR, so we should probably be using that. That's what the district is, you know, requiring. And, and my response is, yeah, that we should. And, (laughs) we can have this. So when that kid with a runny nose comes to the office, 
by the time the parents come to pick them up, if you know that kid has COVID, that's super helpful information. One of the questions, other questions I was going to ask you about is the idea of backup, sort of natural immunity and boosters. Obviously, it's hotly contested even, you know, by our administration and the FDA. And there's a lot of, um, I'm getting, I had a healthy teenager in my office yesterday asking me, do I need a booster? No. Which is, yeah, exactly. It's a really interesting question because will you qualify for a booster in eight months? Yes. As a, you know, 17-year-old athlete, do you need a booster? I mean, I think the way that I'm, the, the you know, the, the way that I'm sort of thinking about it and having, hoping people can understand it is basically, look, when you get these vaccines, there's kind of like two things that happen. One is that you get antibodies immediately and they like stick around. And then you also have T-cell memory for, you know, like long-term immunity, right? But like as the antibodies kind of wane, which they do over some period, then, you know, the T-cells remain. And that means that like, but it means that like your immunity against a mild infection is going to wane because your antibodies aren't like right there to get it like they were before. But on the other hand, I don't think we're seeing much in the way of evidence of waning immunity against hospitalization and death, particularly, I mean, certainly among, among healthy people. And so what's the value of a booster then? Well, the value of a booster is that, like, I guess you like produce some more antibodies in the, in the moment. And so then, you know, you're, you're again in this sort of short term space of like, you're less likely to have a breakthrough. But since for those people, those kind of breakthroughs are not, you know, going to be serious. I, it really gets to the question, and I think this is part of why I'm, I find this booster thing really, in some ways, a little troubling, is it feels like the chasing of zero COVID in a way that is not realistic. And I think if we keep trying to convince people that somehow our goal is that no one will ever have COVID, unfortunately, that is not feasible. I also think that the conversation got a little bit confused, I think, because in some, you know we sort of started talking about boosters for immune compromised people, and that's kind of a different thing. Right, right. What do you think are sort of the highest yield from the data, um, things that we can do as we decide? Like your daughter, for instance, this is a very important situ- you know, thing that she wants to do. You recognize it's higher risk. So what are you going to do to mitigate that? You know, you have the mask. You know, I don't, I think we're still, in some ways, there's still uncertainty about exactly how large those effects are in kids. Um, but, you know, I don't think that they're that they're zero. They certainly seem to protect against other respiratory illnesses. And so, you know, we'll have her do that. And then, you know, we do a fair amount of testing, actually, um, like sort of t- surveillance testing around. And then I think we will we will sometimes limit other things that we do if we are going to like so my, my mother has has lung cancer. And oh, so when we are going to see her, I try pretty hard to be to like sort of think about like, OK, do we want to like dial something down that, you know, do we want to like dial down our exposures it, before we do that? You know, because and we always test before. we. So there's like sort of layer, layers of that, which I think is which I think is we've almost kind of for like we were doing a lot of in the summer of last year or, you know, the spring of last year. And then, and then, and then in the sort of wake of vaccines, it was kind of like, oh, okay, now we're not doing any. And then, and there maybe is a moment for coming back and being like, okay, actually, you know, the, the vaccines are really important, but there's these other things as well. I mean, obviously, if you're seeing a high-risk family member, dial back some of those higher risk activities ahead of time. And I'm telling that with kids too, and with the holidays coming up, you know, if you're going to be traveling, if you're planning to go to, you know, Hawaii, and your kid has to get swabbed before they get on the plane. Like you need to think about what your kid is doing that week before they go. And like, is this a is this a particularly bad time to have a positive test? Actually, that reminded me one of the quotes out of your book. I wrote it down immediately um, that I really appreciated is um, 
you said, don't worry about making the right decision, but ask yourself, are we making this decision well? And I think that's been something that I've been navigating with my patients all of this pandemic. I just couldn't, you sort of just said it so eloquently is sort of like, there's not a right or wrong decision here, but let's make the best decision for your family. And I really appreciated that. And I think the the sort of the the other piece of that for me, particularly in the pandemic, is the recognition that like in some of these cases, our choices, like both decisions sucked. Right. So like when we came like basically, you know, and this and this really resonated for me at Thanksgiving, where basically like, we, you know, it was kind of like we, my family was getting together. The question was, where are we going to go? And and in the end, I kind of came to like I, my two choices are I could be like anxious all weekend about like everyone getting COVID or we could be sad that we didn't go. And there was no secret option C. It was only like anxious or sad. And we chose sad. Um, and, you know, maybe we should have chose anxious. I don't know. And it was sad. I mean, we call, you know, we called them on Thanksgiving. I cried like, you know, and it was like it was very sad. But I think it was it was almost impossible to move forward on the decision until we recognize, like, we are going to make this decision in the best way we can, but we are going to feel like crap about it afterwards, no matter what it is. People want certain, people want certainty. Like they want, they want more data than there is. And I think that, you know, so I feel like in some ways for a person who's like made a career on like data-driven advice, so much of the pandemic has just been like, yeah, we don't know. The sort of what ifism that's that's inherent in some of the long COVID stuff, and then in some of the vaccine hesitancy stuff, and some of you know, it's like it's all just yes, but we we can't know, but also like we have to move forward. You know, we can't we can't just be being like, well, I wish there was no COVID. Like, yeah, that, I me too. Um, you know, but that's not that actually isn't an available option to us. Again, I I also appreciate it in your book about how kids, you know, around age nine or ten, they can start to understand ambivalence and emotion. And I think that this is a time of just real ambivalence. And I had a mom, I had a great text from mom yesterday who said her child was so happy and so much better back in school. And I'm terrified. That's what the mom said. And I'm like, those are both true, right? And that she just said it so clearly. And I think we can all empathize with that. But I really, I think for me personally, I know for a lot of my patients and friends, your numbers have sort of brought clarity during a very terrifying and chaotic time. At least we have a little excitement with back to school. (laughs) But thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside Medicine and our guest, Emily Oster. In just a few weeks, we'll be interviewing renowned gastroenterologist, microbiome expert, and someone I call a friend, Dr. Emren Mayer. He is the author of The Gut Immune Connection and directs the G. Oppenheimer Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience and Cure Digestive Diseases Research Center, both at UCLA.